Good morning, everybody. You have a Bible, uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, and we'll begin our reading in verse 11 in just a few minutes. First of all, I want to say that it has now been two and a half weeks since I had a little heart event, and I'm extremely happy to be back in the saddle, to be back among you and uh, back in the pulpit, so to speak. The, the heart attack that I had was a rather serious one. Um, I had been in pretty good shape, I thought, for a guy my age. I have a Bowflex cross trainer and uh, exercise 15 minutes at a time, many days each week, and had done that vigorously the last few months particularly with the stay-at-home uh, orders. And that morning, I had done that exercise and set a personal record. I thought I was doing pretty well, and uh, all of a sudden, a little while later, probably figured that I had overdone it and had this pain in my chest that was rather overwhelming as they were rolling me on the gurney into the, the ambulance, into the hospital, the ER. I went in and out of consciousness, so great was the pain. The heart attack that I had is called the Widowmaker. I was 100% blocked in my main artery that leads to the left ventricle. And if I understand correctly, only 5 to 10% of people survive that kind of a heart attack. Those who do survive often have many debilitating effects that stay with them. And although I don't know the full extent of what I'm able to do going forward, I'm very happy to be in that five to 10%. And I'm extremely uh, happy to have bounced back to feel pretty much like my old normal self. Got a great report from the cardiologist on Wednesday. And so, I'm just extremely, extremely thankful. There have been cards, well wishes, prayers said in abundance. And so many people have done so many nice things. I want to pay special tribute to Barbara Garten, who is my aunt. For those of you who don't know, she is or was my mom's sister. Uh, John Licking has sent me regular pictures of, of Betty and John's hikes, and those have cheered me up. Uh, Rochelle has said some, some really nice things about my, my teaching. Several of you sent cards that uh, uh, made a huge difference in my outlook on life. Several others across the country and across the world have said such extremely nice things that uh, I, I was privileged to be here to be able to read them rather when it very easily could have gone the other way. So I was reflecting on all that and told Andrea, I should have a heart attack more often. So many people are saying such nice things here. But uh, just let me say that I'm thankful for your, your cards, your well wishes, your prayers. And uh, evidently God is not finished with me yet. I need to simplify my life and eliminate a whole lot of stress factors. I will never have a year like I had last year for sure. 
but uh, every single day is an extra bonus to which I can give something back to the kingdom. And I'm very, very thankful for that. And so thank you for all the, the prayers that you have offered. I, I don't believe I'd be here right now were it not for, for your prayers to Almighty God. In Luke chapter 19, beginning with verse 11, we read that as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. He said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit. You reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, you did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Jesus utters this parable against the backdrop of a famous historical event, probably still familiar to them, even though it had happened some years earlier. Many of those who listened, no doubt connected it with an event in Jewish history that had occurred some years before, when Herod the Great died in 4 BC, he left Judea to his son Archelaus, who had to go to Rome to have his inheritance approved. Not wanting Archelaus as their rulers, the Jews sent 50 men to argue their case before Augustus Caesar, who did in fact ratify the inheritance, but without giving Archelaus the title of king. There are a number of coincidences between that event and this parable. 
But Jesus was more interested in making a, a spiritual point. The nature of the kingdom was spiritual, not material. And many of Jesus' followers were living in a dream world in which the kingdom would be a utopia on earth. And Jesus is destroying their illusions. He proceeded to tell them this parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Helmut Thielich, who was a German theologian and preacher some years ago, says that Jesus preaching among them had been like a great campaign a general attack upon the misery of the world, upon the hostile front of sin and death. Whenever this Nazarene appeared, demon possession yielded. The spell of sin was broken. They could not forget the grateful eyes of those whose fetters this master had broken, of those from whose poor blind eyes he had banished the night, of those upon whom he had bestowed new life. So the disciples gained the definite impression that Whenever this man appeared, he made deep inroads upon the front of the realm of death, and that now he was about to roll up this whole front. In a mighty crescendo, his redemptive powers would overrun the old aeon, and then within a short time, the new world of God would be erected upon the ruins of the old. Mothers would again hold their missing sons in their arms. There would be no more widows and orphans because death itself would be interned. There would, uh, where before there surged the sea of blood and tears, the golden fields of harvest would grow. But no, it would not be. Even though this parable is uttered just before the triumphal entry, when many would, would have excitement that would go off the charts, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Verse 38. They would shout with loud voices about the mighty works that they had seen. And about the great king who was riding in glory to Jerusalem. In their minds to usher in a kingdom of glory. And here Jesus dispels that notion. The kingdom would not immediately appear. In fact, it would be like a nobleman who goes into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then be an absentee king, at least as far as face-to-face -face relations are concerned. When he returned, he would have received the kingdom, but then would be the accountability of those who conducted affairs in the kingdom in his absence so far as face-to-face -face relations were concerned. And isn't that like the nature of the kingdom that Jesus himself has set up? He has returned to heaven, and he has appeared to servants, as it were, summoned them to receive their assignment, and they all receive the same amount. They all receive a mina. Ten minas, ten servants. This may remind you of the parable of the talents, but a talent is worth about 60 times more than a mina. A talent is essentially about 15 years wages, 
or a common laborer. Amina is only three months wages. I suppose on one level, that's not a tremendous amount of money, but it certainly beats a government stimulus check. It's not nothing. In fact, it's a, a no, enough money to make a noteworthy investment. Sometimes we may think that in this wicked world that we are helpless, that we are without resources, that we don't have the, the tools to adequately dispel evil notions that are all around us. And true enough, the weapons of our warfare are, are not physical. They're, they're not of the flesh, but nonetheless, they are still mighty to, to accomplish God's purposes, according to 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 4. They still serve the power of God. We are not entirely without resources. And the Lord himself has put this, this noteworthy resource into our hands so that we can make an investment in the kingdom. We are not powerless. We have the ability to engage in business until he comes again. We are not nobodies. James says in the book that bears his name, chapter 2 and verse 5, Listen, my blood brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? And so to his servants, he hands out these, this assignment, and he hands out with it, the resources to fulfill the assignment. But there are others under the scope of his rule who want no part of this. We'll call them unruly subjects. They come under the scope of his rule in some sense, but they're not willing subjects. They're not servants. In some sense, they, we might call them citizens, verse 14. A better word is enemies, verse 27. And they send a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. They want nothing to do with his kingdom, even though he does have authority over them. One day after a while, he returns. And when he returns, there's a day of reckoning even for his servants. One by one, they appear, and they multiply the various minas that they have been given. One man multiplies his mina ten times over. He's rewarded. Another servant multiplies his mina five times over. He's rewarded. And the reward in both case, cases dwarfs the return on investment. But there's another representative servant who has buried his mina in a handkerchief. He's laid that mina away, entrusted that in a safe place, but overwhelmed at the thought that he could actually make a difference in this wicked world, overwhelmed at the thought that he could actually be successful. His motivation is fear and therefore he remains unproductive. He sees the obstacles, not the opportunities. And ultimately what little he was entrusted with is taken away and given to the most productive servant. He lulls himself into a familiar comfort zone 
Instead of launching out in faith, he re resigns. And in his resignation, he is completely unproductive. And in the end, he loses even what he had. If there's one lesson that we can learn from this, brothers and sisters, it is that the Christian life is one of movement, one of investment, one of productivity, not one of preservation of the status quo. We either risk everything for the kingdom or we resign ourselves into playing it safe. But either way, there will be consequences, heavy, heavy consequences. And so we need to ask ourselves the question, which will it be for us? But there's also a day of reckoning for unruly subjects. In short, but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. What are the lessons? What are the takeaways that we can learn from all of this? Number one, the kingdom of God defies earthly expectations. I want to use this parable in our class next Wednesday night, but I don't have time to make all these lessons on a Wednesday night. And so I'm preaching this supplementary sermon here on a Sunday. And the point is that Jesus leaves to receive a kingdom. And in the meantime, entrusts his, to his faithful servants a work to do while he is away. This is exactly the nature of the messianic kingdom. We read about Jesus in Acts 3.21 that heaven must receive him until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken of by the mouth of his holy apostles or prophets rather since the world began. When Jesus returns, moreover, it will not be to receive a kingdom, but rather to relinquish parts of it. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23, we read about the second coming of Christ. And then in verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. In the meantime, as we've studied in our Ephesians class on Sunday mornings, Ephesians 1, 20 and 21 says that God has seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He has all authority now, but when he comes again, there will be a day of reckoning. Kingdom. Then in implies submission and accountability on our part. You know the saying, A plus O equals R. Ability plus opportunity equals responsibility. And this will not end well for those who conservatively lay away what has been entrusted to them instead of putting it to work. The bottom line is God wants us to use and develop the gifts and opportunities that he has given to us. Do not squander what you have been given. Time, opportunity, talent, 
ability, open doors, and you never know, there may be a Wednesday morning when you have a pain in your chest and it all comes to a screeching halt. You never, ever know. And therefore, you have opportunity today. Use it. British evangelist Rodney Gypsy Smith said, there are five gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Christian. But most people will never read the first four. And so you, here you have exhibit A, a walking, talking, living, breathing kingdom citizen. Snatch your opportunity. Develop your potential. Dormant potential is like Amina hidden in a napkin. Our message must be seen before it is heard. Our Lord says in Matthew 5, 16, so let your light shine before men that they may see your light, your light shine, that you may, they may glorify your Father who, who is in heaven. We must live supernatural lives and bear supernatural fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Or as Philippians, the second chapter says, in verses 14 and 15, do all things without grumbling or disputing. You may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Let your light shine so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We all have accountability, and for some, even of the servants of the Master, the day of accountability will not be a happy reckoning. But for rebels, the ending is even worse. For those who rebel against the rule of the king, for those who say we do not want this man to rule over us, what a terrible day that will be. 1 Peter 4, 17 and 18 says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? When Peter says the righteous is scarcely saved, he does not mean that we barely squeeze in through the door. What he's saying is that the righteous is saved with great difficulty. God knows that we will have great difficulty in this wicked world. That's the nature of the kingdom here upon the earth. Good and evil will be in conflict with one another. But if we are saved with great difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? In Matthew 21, 42 through 44, 
Jesus speaks of the rejected stone becoming the chief cornerstone. And he says, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Here you have the first century Jews, people looking for the kingdom of God. And when it came, they turned their backs on it. Their prevailing attitude was, we do not want this man to rule over us. And even today, there are people in this world whose attitude is, we don't want to be accountable to anybody. I think that partially explains the venom that unbelievers have toward those of us who are believers. Their attitude is, you are submitting to a king against whom we would rather defy in open rebellion. But it, won't, it will not end well for them. One final thought, and it's a great thought. Productive servants are rewarded disproportionately. One mina is about three months' wages. Multiply your salary, your monthly salary, by three times. And in this parable, for each of those units of salary that is reproduced in your investment in the kingdom, you are put in charge over an entire city. When's the last time you bought an entire city with just three months of wages? That doesn't happen in the real world. But on the final day of judgment, when the reward is handed out, the reward will dwarf our output of investment. How great will heaven be? The answer is greater than any investment and any sacrifice you have ever made to get there. Salvation is a matter of grace. And God's grace will dwarf our output of effort. This last week, the Indian apologist, Ravi Zacharias, passed away. don't agree with all of his theology, but he was a phenomenal speaker. And if you ever have an opportunity to listen to his YouTube video on why I believe in Jesus, I would highly recommend it. He gives several illustrations in that video. One of them is an opportunity that came to him one time to speak before the United Nations, or at least one organization within the United Nations in New York. And he thought long and hard about what a rare opportunity to speak to such a distinguished audience. And so he decided eventually to speak on four, four issues, overcoming enemies, justice, forgiveness, and love. 
And he spoke about the need for all four of those qualities in this wicked world. And then in his few remaining minutes at the very end of his talk, he said that those four issues all converge in one great event in human history, the cross of Christ, in which enemies have finally been overcome, justice has finally been upheld, forgiveness has finally been granted, all motivated by the world's greatest love, When he was done speaking, one delegate came up to him. He said, I came, I come from an atheist country. I was sent to New York against my will. I have not wanted to be here. I have asked myself repeatedly, why am I here? Today, I finally have found my answer. This was life-changing for him. And it can be life-changing for you. Give your heart and your life to Jesus. To serve him faithfully. To receive a reward that is out of this world. Won't you believe in him? Won't you be baptized in him? Won't you serve him with everything that you got? The reward will dwarf your investment. I heartily recommend him with everything that I have while I still have life and breath. Let's sing a song of invitation.